the problem of practice, like the gap between your school's vision and implementing that vision, and your conversation just takes off. And our guest this week, Perry Smith, is the Director of Instruction for Curriculum with the Abbotsford School District in British Columbia. And that's his topic for his doctoral dissertation. We really get into it for sure with some of the common concerns about change and changes to instruction, particularly with Indigenous content, worldview, and competencies. So here are your hosts, Shelley, Steve, and me, Stan. We respectfully acknowledge that the land on which we gather, work, learn, and live daily are the traditional territory of Indigenous peoples. And while we meet online from across the country, each of us lives on the traditional lands of Indigenous peoples, stand on the unceded territory of the Coast Salish people, the Sunaimo First Nation of British Columbia, and Shelley and I on the traditional territory of the Mississaugas in Ontario. As a settler organization, we do this to reaffirm our commitment and responsibility to strengthening our understanding of and improving relationships between nations, and to further our own understanding of Indigenous peoples, their culture, and how to move forward together in a good way. We acknowledge the contributions and accomplishments of all Indigenous peoples across Turtle Island, current and throughout history. Thanks very much, Steve, and welcome to our podcast this week. We have a very special guest with us this week. We have Perry Smith, who is the Director of Instruction for Curriculum for the Abbotsford School District. So well, welcome, Perry. Welcome. Oh, thank you. Thank welcome. you. Thank you. I just want to also uh, acknowledge that uh, I'm I'm in the traditional ancestral territory of the Samyamu people uh, here in the uh, west coast of, of British Columbia, uh, and uh, and the Abbotsford School District is located in the traditional territory of the Samath and the and the uh, uh, Mathequay. So I'm uh, very glad to be here with you today. You are doing a doctoral dissertation with a really interesting problem of practice. Can you just tell us a little bit about this problem of practice? Because I think that'll take us right into the topic for discussion today. Oh, sure. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm uh, pretty excited about uh, the, the work and the research I'm doing right now with uh, Western University uh, uh, in their leadership development program. Uh, and, and at the beginning of the program, they, they had us uh, do a bit of a gap analysis uh, to think about, uh, you know, uh, wh what, are, what are some of the changes that we're trying to implement in, in, in our professional lives? And, and uh, you know, uh, what is the preferred state? Where is it that we want to go? And, and where are we right now? And, and uh, it started really with the implementation of, of BC's redesigned curriculum. And that that uh, you know the the redesign of British Columbia's learning standards to uh, parse out the content from the competency uh, learning standards that we want students to to learn was really a, a revolutionary change uh, that that rocked education in BC for for teachers to consider how content is no longer king in learning uh, is is a big change. Uh, it turns learning on its head and they consider how how competencies like thinking and collaborating and personal and social competencies are the things that we will assess uh, really do uh, create a, uh, an urgency to change that that was pretty powerful. Within that, though, uh, the most important change for me as an Indigenous person was the addition of Indigenous 
learning standards. Uh, so the, so the, uh, the addition of uh, Indigenous content and competencies in each subject area, in each grade throughout the curriculum K to 12 uh, is, is an addition to that revolutionary change uh, that, that, you know, created a, a, a lot of, uh, I don't want to say discontent, but it was certainly a perturbance in the system, right, that, that uh, uh, initiated a lot of people to, to, you know, first kind of deny it, no, this, this isn't what it's going to be, this will go away, don't worry, uh, to that, to, you know, you go through the, 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 the change kind of curve to, you know, how can they do this? I, I don't have the skills to do this. Uh, I don't know anything about Indigenous culture. I'm not Indigenous myself. I don't have the resources for this. Uh, where are the Indigenous people to come into my class to teach this, uh, this content and these competencies? Uh, you know, I do want to try it moving moving through the acceptance stage but the fear of doing it wrong um, and 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 getting in trouble for for doing my best doing something with a good mind and a good heart and and, and getting in trouble from either a parent or my administrator or or from the district or the community uh, and so identifying that that gap from our, our vision of of every, every child learning about Indigenous worldviews and perspectives and the history of Indigenous people in Canada. Um, and then looking at our current implementation identified a gap for me uh, to consider how do we increase the implementation of Indigenous worldviews in every classroom woven throughout the learning, not just an event. Uh, because we know you know, I worked in the Indigenous Education Department in Abbotsford for 17 years prior to uh, being in, in the curriculum department. And, and, you know, seeing schools really try to incorporate Indigenous culture into the school by having Indigenous days or having a presentation come in or, uh, you know, having a, uh, an assembly where dancers come and present, which was great. Uh, we were really pleased to see that that integration uh, emerge, but now wanting to go the next step to see it embedded into the learning throughout the day. Uh, so that's really the focus of my studies is, you know, how does a school district create the, you know, the impetus for change, uh, go through that, that change process of, of, of helping teachers gain the skills and, and, and also the, you know, the catalyze the, the um, intrinsic motivation to do it. And then, you know, see that uh, that fruition of, of ubiquitous practice, I guess. Yeah, changes, changes change. And it doesn't matter if it's about curriculum or in our case, restorative practices or whatever it is, there is, it's almost like, you know, you think of the, the, the stages of, of whatever, the stages of change. You first, you get angry, then you get defensive and all those kind of things. And, and it, but you know, on a certain level, it's absolutely true. If you suddenly change a direction or how, how something's going to happen, we have to give people the skills to get caught up to do that. And it's the old analogy of flying a plane, you know, building a plane while flying it. Mm -hmm. Keep teaching, but we're going to keep building while we're going. And so uh, that part freaks a lot of people out too. They think, well, we should land this plane first, figure out, build it all, and then we'll take off. Well, we haven't got time to land it. The only time we land a plane is in the summer. And none of you are working in the summer. So it's, uh, it is changes a difficult concept. And so I dealt with it for many years and you're right. It, it takes time. Um, and even for that, we all talk about the, you know, the 10% rocks in the road, the 
80% in the middle who are kind of waiting and the 10% who are just charged, leading the charge with all the change, the 80% will slowly get there. It's that 10% rocks in the road that we really need to, we struggle with. And, um, but they're still there. We can't just ignore them. We can't say, well, they're rocks in the road, just steer around them and keep going. No, they're in front of kids every day. They need to change too. So an investigation into that. Yeah. Steve, you make a really great point, I think, in, in kind of differentiating the different different uh, stakeholders in, in a change model, right? That it, it's just like our classroom when we were teachers that we can't have a one size fits all mm-hmm. model for for change or instruction or learning or, or what, whatever the, the metaphor that we have to really differentiate the model to, to fit, fit the different receivers of our change, right? Mm-hmm. So it's very interesting. And of course, with restorative practice, we, we experienced change where everybody bought into it all at the same time, very enthusiastically. No, they didn't. <laughs> no, they didn't. Uh, there were a lot of um, a lot of obstacles. Some of the same ones, uh, yes. really. You know, to say, I really don't have time to change what I'm already doing, or I'm afraid. And then you can fill in the blank for a lot of different things. Um, I'm afraid of making a mistake. I'm afraid of getting into trouble. Um, Busy. It's too much on my plate already. Exactly. It's, you know, it's it's the old sharpening the saw analogy. I'm too busy teaching to figure out how to teach. But. It would almost be an interesting discussion, and maybe this work's been done. But is is it personality traits? Is it characteristics of a, an educator rather than how long they've been teaching or what they're involved in that that helps that that shift? And, and I don't know that I have the answer, but I but I think it's interesting that you said that because one of one of, one of the great experiences of, of my time in the Indigenous department was working with a new senior leader that, that I reported to that, that had an experience over the summer before I started to report to them. They had an emotional experience that catalyzed their passion for Indigenous education. Uh, and, and, you know, it, it, I can't recall if it was a, a, a video or, or a reading that they did that you know, uh, was a, it was a watershed moment for them where all of a sudden it, it hit home, it became personal and, and they became my greatest ally. Uh, and, and it's, and I'm, I'm fascinated with trying to find that emotional experience for, for each person, uh, that, that creates that passion that lights the fire for them. I, I find that fascinating. I would say certainly for circles in restorative practice. It's the experience of circles that is going to change somebody's practice. I don't know, you know, let's, you know, sitting around singing Kumbaya. I don't know if that's really what I want to do. Well, candidly, I don't want to do it either. But once you get into a circle, once you actually experience it and you have that emotional experience of the circle, that's the kind of thing that can start to shift someone's thinking and can start to change some of the the structures really. And when you see the kids light up, whether that's kindergarten students or grade 12 students, that is when students, teachers start to get it as well, right? And um, it's my experience has been, and I believe with Stan and Steve as well, is it's the teachers that have incorporated restorative practices into their teaching practice and not seeing it as a standalone, that although we are no longer supporting those folks, I know it's still happening for them because I still get the odd email, the phone call. What do you think of this? So because they've incorporated into their daily practice, they're having success with it. It's sticking. Are there things that you can identify, Perry, that are structures that have changed 
that enhance student learning or that haven't changed and now inhibit student learn engagement and learning? Mm, that's an interesting question. Uh, you know, I, I think about the work that our, our, our school district is involved in a, a group called the Deeper Learning Dozen. Uh, and it's a group of, of 12 school districts that work with uh, Harvard University in, in investigating how we can increase the occurrence of deeper learning in schools. So, so really aligning closely with our, with our curriculum in, in uh, thinking, uh, thinking competencies and communication. Uh, as well as as uh, identity, uh, and one of one of the the tenets of of deeper learning that we discuss is that inequity or equity is structural, and how do we look at the structures in our system uh, to to kind of identify where where they where they are serving students and where they aren't serving students, uh, and and it has been fascinating for us to really look at. Where, where in our system uh, are our structures serving our, our ends and where aren't they serving our ends? And, and, and starting to consider, uh, you know, uh, structures that we thought were benign, like our calendar uh, or our, our bell schedule or, uh, you know, how we structure our day in school. Uh, our secondary schools, for example, have been going through uh, a massive inquiry into how do we structure our secondary schools to increase engagement. Uh, you know, the, the pandemic uh, created some opportunity for us, you know, with all of the, the restrictions and structures that we had around how we group kids uh, to move to a quarter system rather than having a semester system so that we could uh, have students uh, uh, not change groupings rapidly uh, and have by that have a, a closer relationship with their teacher uh, and more time uh, continuously to learn. Uh, and, and we saw some real advantage uh, for kids that were vulnerable to build a closer relationship with their teacher, to have less transitions, uh, to have more time to dig deeper into content and competency. Uh, and, it, and it had some real benefits for learning. Um, you know, uh, it, it didn't work for some kids, for some kids that, that really needed the extended time, kids that uh, have uh, issues with, with attendance, that, that missing a week of school now in a quarter system is missing a month of school. Uh, so really having a look at our structures and, and seeing, you know, who are the structures serving? Are they serving the adults? Are they serving the kids? Uh, and, and what are our core values and what, are, what is our mission? I, I, I just think it's, it's a, a really helpful, helpful practice. I, I find it, you brought that up and I find it interesting because this was something we were talking about in the area that I live in Durham region. Um, sometimes it's, it's, you know, things that we've talked about for years as a way of trying something new and different and it kind of receives lukewarm and, you know, response. And so we never do it. Now, all of a sudden, when a crisis comes along and we have to do it, we're forced into a change. All of a sudden, we do it and everybody goes, why, why haven't we been doing this for years? This is working great. And I think of locally, um, you know, with COVID and with a whole lot of other reasons, they can't get bus drivers. And they've had a real tough time finding bus drivers. So they decided to switch the school day for secondary, where secondary students are starting at 10 o'clock. They go from 10 well, to 4. Fancy 4:30. that. 
when and your we, brain's you know, actually yeah, awake. Yeah, we've been yeah. talking about that for how many years about <laughs> their sleep. They should start later and all that stuff. And nobody ever did it. But now when they can't get bus drivers, so they've got, you know, one driver will do three routes in the morning. And the last route is the high school run. So they're picking kids up at 9.30, 9.45. And, you know, classes start at 10 and 10.15. That's something that was forced on us almost to a degree. We had to be creative to get kids to school. And now they're loving it. But when a crisis is created through nothing, you know, no fault of our own, that's a time to try things differently because people will say, well, we're only doing it because of this. And now something that we all figured would work is working. Online learning. You know, some kids absolutely love online learning. And I can see, we can all see, you know, five, 10 years down the road when COVID is hopefully gone, that there'll be a, a niche market for kids learning online. Have you noticed anything in terms of the equity and equity structure in the classroom that's kind of come up either during COVID or in looking at implementing Indigenous content and competencies? That, that's, a, that's an interesting question. It, uh, I, I think what one of the things that, that we're, we're looking at right now, for, especially for in, increasing the, the amount of Indigenous culture that's embedded into the classroom is around resources looking at how do we resource schools to ensure they have, you know, the books, the videos, the, the online content that they need uh, in, in order to be successful. Uh, because it's unreasonable to expect a non-Indigenous teacher to know all there is to know uh, about, uh, you know, implementing Indigenous culture in the classroom. It's unreasonable to expect an Indigenous teacher to know all there is to know about integrating Indigenous culture into the classroom because, you know, as, an, as a uh, Shushwap uh, uh, status Indian uh, from Cash Creek, BC, I don't know everything about my own culture. I certainly don't know everything about Métis, Inuit, other First Nations or, 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 or other Indigenous groups in Canada. Uh, so we need to make sure that we are resourcing our schools uh, in a way that they, they have, have what they need. Uh, and, and really, uh, that means that we have to have a look at how we uh, allocate funds to schools, one, for, for you know, print and non-print resources, uh, and, and, and think about, uh, you know, what are ways that we can allocate resources to schools that aren't just based on uh, headcount? Uh, because often, if, we, if we're looking at a headcount allocation, uh, it's our secondary schools that get the biggest chunk of money, uh, that, uh, and then they have, you know, more opportunity to, to, to purchase resources. Uh, our smaller schools, which, you know, uh, sometimes have the highest population of Indigenous students. I think about one of our elementary schools that's quite, uh, quite small that has uh, nearly a third of its population is Indigenous. Uh, you know, depending on how we resource that school, they may have the least amount of funds uh, to, to purchase resources that support the, in, uh, the implementation, implementation of Indigenous curriculum. Uh, so, you know, thinking about, uh, uh, you know, looking at our population, disaggregating it, looking at where that, where those resources need, uh, are needed, and then also considering, you know, what structures do we have that 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 are that are population bias or or uh, culture, culturally biased uh, that that may need to be kind of blown up and rethought of. In the back of my mind, I'm thinking of the word differentiation. You know, we we when you think of structures, 
the structure we have for creating and managing schools doesn't look at differentiation. As you say, it's a, it's a per capita funding model. So when we talk about restorative practices, and I was in schools uh, with huge challenges and huge socioeconomic problems and, and issues where behavior was, was the number one issue on everybody's mind. But we got the same number of teachers and the same amount of money as every a, you know, a school down the road with half twice as many kids, and yet they had you know might do one suspension every five years where I'm I was doing one a day, and so you know that whole differentiated mindset just doesn't come into play when we talk about the structures that we're under. And you that's did change you did change that though, didn't you, Steve? I mean, you went from one suspension a day to, down to <laughs> well, one a year too, see, right? Come yeah, on, man. Exactly. So you know, it, it, you know, <laughs> but to to the point about change, you know, the school I was in did 270 suspensions one year with only 300 kids in the school, and so we talked about well, we need to change. It, it got to the point where I came in and said, let's try this restorative practice approach. They said, well, we might as well. Nothing else is working, and so we did. But that was the reason that a lot of teachers bought into it and changed it. And a lot didn't. And for various reasons, found other callings somewhere else. But in three to four years, we had brought our suspensions down to maybe 15 a year from 270 with the same core three, 320 kids. So, you know, it can happen over time, but there's an impetus to that. And, and but then with the funny thing, I went from that school to a, a school in a different area of the board where behavior was just not even an issue. It was something that people didn't, their, their worst behavior problem was kids not walking on the right side of the hallway. You know, that's and pretty, that's pretty drastic. Pretty, well, we had to you know, we'd have a committee meeting for that, one, but you know, <laughs> behavior wasn't there. And yet to my point, they got the same amount of per capita funding. They had the same people, student uh, teacher pupil ratio, all the, everything, the whole model was the same. And yet the school of 300 had far greater needs than the school of 500. So, I mean, that's where I was speaking from that, that mindset. So when you think of what Perry's doing with curriculum, there will be schools where the teachers are on board and they're moving forward. Do they get the same amount of PD and the same amount of funding for PD as a school where they're not on board and we, and we need to look at differentiated approaches to changing the staff and moving them forward? I would suggest that probably the model would be they all get the same, but maybe one needs more. So that's something to think about. There sure are a lot of fears for educators, especially predominantly white educators, when making changes in Indigenous content, worldview, and competencies. And I love the standard to do the things you do with a good mind, a good heart, and common sense. Equity and inequity are about structures. So it's great to ask about things that seem benign, like we did in this conversation, like what does this, who does the structure serve? Look at things like bell time, school calendars and the school day. We got so carried away <laughs> with this conversation with Perry Smith that we have to continue it next week. It's worth listening to the second half of this. When we talk about learning asymmetry between students and adults, Want to hear more about the how-to of making changes to structures? Send me an email to stan at restorative.ca and let's learn in symmetry.